Hello and welcome to the Double Pivot, the world's most agreeable soccer analytics podcast. I am Michael Cayley. We are back to talk about the Super League. We, we, we recorded this whole podcast on the Super League. We went through like all the permutations of it, kind of what we thought was going on. We were a little bit like, uh, this, this seems weaker than we thought. And within 24 hours, it had collapsed like a flan in the cupboard. So, uh, and we had already scheduled an interview um, to talk to an expert, talk to somebody who sort of knows the history and the business side and, and you know, knows the landscape. And so when we talked to, talk, I, mean, I DM Josh, it was like, so can we talk for the Super League? And, and he said, of a Thursday, I was like, that, that, that's great. Sort of give us some time to see what happens. But uh, now it's just a completely different story. And so this is more of an autopsy than uh, anything else. But I think there's a lot of really interesting questions. Our, our guest is uh, Josh Robinson. He is a European sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, in particular, he's the author of a book called The Club. We did a podcast on this. Um, this co-author, Jonathan Clegg, and, um, which is about the formation of the Premier League, which is like about as, uh, about as relevant as you could be to this topic. Like, how did a breakaway league form? Um, I'm also joined by Mike Goodman, who has some stuff to say about. I don't I don't know what topics. He's probably got something to say. I'll figure something out. The music you heard on the way in is the Whalers. Max is not with us on the other side of the virtual glass. Please subscribe. Make us happy as podcasters. Subscribe over on patreon.com slash double pivot, where we will have a Musa Dembele level podcast this week on the firing of Josie Mourinho. He's been one of the biggest news stories you might have imagined has been relegated to third string. But, um... Let's focus on talking about what didn't happen, which is the, the Super League. Uh, Josh, welcome. You, you uh, had a nice, calm few days, I, I imagine. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've slept about as much as uh, about as Jose, about as much as Jose Mourinho recently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Kelly, I think probably like you were, before we before we started recording you were talking about like the striking similarities at the uh, the beginning of the the book Josh wrote to sort of where we where we or co-wrote to where we we find ourselves now so do, should we should we kick it off there you think yeah cuz i think that like one of the one of the questions one of the general questions that i definitely wanted to ask is like what did you think was similar and different here between this and the start of the premier league and and the thing that really struck me going back to your book is that you specifically identified like the defining moment in the formation of the Premier League was this meeting where they had to decide on their on on, on their on their television TV deal. deal. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it, there was this big uh, fight between uh, B Sky B and ITV over the funding, and that was the thing that made the deal happen. And there was no TV deal here. Like that seemed to me to be one crucial difference. I don't know what you thought. Yeah, that, that is a big difference. But what I would say is the same sense of feeling aggrieved and feeling like they, were, they weren't getting their due is what animates both of these. And it's not a coincidence, really, that four of the five clubs who caused the Premier League breakaway, you know, what formed the Premier League, we're talking about Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool and Spurs are back here in the Super League breakaway. And it's the same kind of idea of, hang on, we're getting paid as a league. We're getting paid as a group, but people are tuning in to watch us. Uh, why should we? Why should we share equally in this in this way? And by the way, what's different here is there's a qualification aspect that we'll get into. But um, really, it's feeling. Why are we dragging these other guys along with us? People want to see us. So I think that they're like that's not a. When they say that, that is not exactly wrong. Like, th they are correct. No, they have a point. Right. That's the crazy part. Now, the question is, like, why do people want to, you know, watch them and, and, and sort of all of the systems built uh, sort of under them that promote them up the, 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 the pyramid? I think that what I found uh, interesting here, and uh, our friend Grace Robertson wrote a little bit about this, is that... When the Premier League was founded, sort of in the early 90s, and in the build-up to it, there was a, a popular corporate idea, basically, that, like, sort of doing these kinds of things is not bad. It's good. It's, it's sort of like, you know, becoming bigger, be, you know, the pomp and the circumstance. And, you, you know, in the book, I recall, like, there was this idea that, like, some of the owners went over and watched American Monday Night Football and were like, 
oh wow okay this is this is the thing right like this sort of like making this an event a televised event with stuff before the man which was foreign to to sort of english coverage at the time yeah exactly it's the it's the idea also of not just creating an event but viewing supporters as customers Right. Um, and, and that was something that hadn't really occurred to them. In fact, the very idea of making money from football was kind of foreign at that point because owners in, in England, and I think we heard a lot of this this week again, um, were considered custodians. You right. know, no one was taking a salary from a club as an owner until the 80s. You know, for the first hundred years, they were basically schoolmasters running someplace like Eton or something. You know, that was the kind of idea or, or effective in reality, self-made businessmen local, buying the local club that they grew up on the terraces of. And, and that was what they wanted to give back to their community. They, that gave them importance locally. And that was enough. Um, but suddenly these things became huge businesses. And honestly, being like the local rich guy wasn't, wasn't going to cut it if you were going to try to develop them into money-making enterprises and develop your fan base into customers. At the same time, it, it became that it wouldn't cut it if you were going to be competitive at the top of the league either, exactly. because other others of these clubs were now bringing in sort of internationally huge money owners to mm-hmm. which had competitive advantages. But what's interesting here is like the premier league succeeded in this failed. And my question is, you know, there's been a, it is obviously true that there was a mass outcry against the formulation of the Super League. There was also a pretty large outcry against the formulation of the Premier League. Is the is you know I'm interested in sort of trying to like drill down on the reasons why we had different outcomes. And my you know mm-hmm. so part of my question is like, well, is part of it we're in a different environment now where um, big businesses are trying to signal sort of broadly that like they are on the side of their customers in, in, in sort of very real ways. And that's what Grace wrote about. Or is it mostly like, you know, UEFA and FIFA opposed this sort of dramatically and there wasn't the sort of institutional opposition to the Premier League that we saw here to the formulation of the Super League. That's a, that's a really interesting point about being on the side of the customers. And I think there are a couple of things at play. Um, one is, you know, the moment that the Premier League came about, they were the first to do it. And that was really that mentality shift that I'm talking about from like, you know, supporters to customers. Now that's entrenched. We've had 30 years of this and the Premier League did it better than anyone else. Um, And the idea of taking that to a further extreme, because don't get me wrong, this Super League is dead in the water, but the forces that created it are still very much present. You know, those clubs still feel aggrieved that they're not getting their due. Um, and, And on the other side of it, you know, there are still, there is still the struggle from the UEFA's and, you know, the Premier League, who are organizations that are basically in the business of selling television rights. They just happen to organize some soccer games on the side. You know, that is what they're there for. Um, You know, those, those organizations are also trying to maximize profits while maintaining control of an effective monopoly. And we can talk about this more, but, you know, if you get into the legalities of it, I think UEFA is feeling pretty relieved that this resolved itself without having to go to court today. Yeah, because you you reported on this a bunch um, right as it was first coming out that like one of the questions is, and, and this was this was actually, I, I believe this is also true in the formation of, there's a really interesting, I think, parallel to this in the formation of the Premier League, where they thought there was a football league rule that restricted them from leaving. But there was mm-hmm. actually an FA rule that like overrode it and they were able yeah. to, and, and I saw that in the book again, but like, it seemed like you were sort of looking at sort of similar, like parallels here. Like what were the legal avenues that if this had gone down, um, you, you would see UEFA and the new league fighting over? Yeah. The, the, the issue here that you run into is that because the pan-European organization, you run into EU law and, uh, to say that, you know, if UEFA was going to try to make the case that a rival setting up was anti-competitive, that might not have flown. Um, and there were a host of recent rulings, I mean, as, you know, in sports as diverse as like speed skating, um, that kind of set a precedent that was not so rosy for UEFA. And in fact, uh, in, in the, one of their few concrete actions 
in the 48 hours that the Super League existed was filing um, a motion in a Madrid court, which is a pretty friendly court for these purposes, um, to say that the sanctions from UEFA couldn't be applied um, until there was a thorough examination in, in a kind of trial setting. Um, you know, that kind of flew under the radar and is moot now. But really, that that would have scared some people in neon. Yeah, so there was, there was, there was, you know, at the height of this, when everything was flying at, you know, God knows what speed, there, there was one member of UEFA's Exco saying on, I think, Monday that we we're going to, you know, we expect to kick the th- three teams that are part of this group and are still in this year's Champions League out by Friday. And then you <laughs> had um, Seferin, the, the head of UEFA, on Tuesday saying, well, that probably can't happen for legal reasons. But yes, we, were, we are examining all the things we want to do. Um, it struck me through all of this that, as you were saying, the outcome of the legal battle was not perhaps particularly clear, but that a lot of the the posturing and the legal sort of, um, you know, the, the legal confrontations would have been as much to delay the Super League from starting mm-hmm. at all, while also being able to then apply leverage by not letting these teams compete in the Champions League. So you just had them sort of on the outside looking in as a way to apply pressure to them to drop the project, all of which becomes moot, I suppose, now <laughs> that it's not happening. Yeah. But right, like that's where we were headed was like a lot of legal battles, which were as much yeah. about exercising power as the actual decision at the end of the day. Oh, we were we were all about to become experts in EU competition law. <laughs> if for no other reason, thank God this didn't happen. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have visions of American political commentators switching from like being you know experts in in you know um, FDA vaccine regulation over to EU you know competition law as as the the, the big story rolled over from one to the other. I think that didn't stop them anyway. It, it did not. There, <laughs> but there was there was a, a long stretch of time there on Monday into Tuesday where like it was the story to comment on. It was not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as the as far as the Premier League is concerned, you know, for that effort to succeed, so many conditions had to be just right, and they got lucky in a lot of spots. They talk about it today, even the founders, um, you know, finding that loophole that allowed the creation to of the Premier League. And hitting it at a moment where the FA was mad at the football league. So the FA gave its blessing. Um, All of these things combined at precisely the right moment, plus the arrival of Rupert Murdoch with basically new technology um, and, and a lot of money to set on fire because his, uh, his satellite uh, setup was, was failing otherwise. Um, I, I do wonder if if this had succeeded, if we wouldn't be telling the same story about streaming rights, if we wouldn't have been looking at, say, Amazon or DAZN at, as one of these new media companies getting into buying sports rights and saying, you know, part of the story of its success mm-hmm. was there was this other market that could come in and buy these rights. That's, that's a great point. Um, I think one thing, though, that got overplayed, like on Sunday night, right when things were starting to froth, um, people saying there are rumors of like Amazon being in or of like Facebook being in. And for just a moment, it it paid to step back and say, well, hang on. Facebook has never broadcast anything live except the IPL, the Indian Premier League cricket. Um, It's like, are they really going to spend top dollar to commit to something that they don't know can exist and certainly does not exist yet? Um, So like that, that was a, it does, seem, it does seem like Facebook's a, a, a little bit far-fetched. Yeah. yeah, it does seem like Facebook specifically has, has been an entity that's been used as a little bit of a stalking horse by by owners through yeah. in, in in a number of, of sort of negotiated rights situations. But, but in talking to people who were very into the kind of operational side of this, who are actually running the business, I'm not talking about you know the your grandstanding Florentino Perez's or or your silent Premier League owners. Um, the people who are actually trying to make this happen from a, a financial side and a business side. Um, I was told there could not be a broadcaster signed on sort of ahead of time until the breakaway happened. And only then, once there was a product to sell, could they actually go and fetch a, a broadcaster. But clearly they didn't even get that far. And and so, and so that is that why the, that was that because the, the big thing that, that funded it was this, this huge loan 
from uh, Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan Chase, which they then called an infrastructure grant, even though it was like obviously a loan, which is kind of wonderful. But like it's that seemed to be like that was the money that they were like expecting to. That was a loan on the expected TV rights, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. Because TV rights were going to be like the the largest source of income. There was really not going to be anything else. Um, And the you know the infrastructure loan it was written into the contracts that they could only spend it on either improving the stadium or by the way uh kind of fixing some of the finances so like plugging the hole in their finances that COVID had created which is you know they said explicitly it can't be spent on players it's like no but if you're just plugging a hole in in your books then that's what it is in effect. Because right. you can know... use your own you can use your own money to buy players and then plug the hole that not having that money is with this money. Right, right. Um, so the infrastructure loan, which you know was was a hefty amount. We're talking about what was it, $350 million or euros um for, for each club just for signing on. That was um so I, that I makes a this, difference. Yeah, I think this brings me to sort of uh, the the financial side of this question, which is a lot of these teams are saying um, we need this money, right? Like like mm-hmm. to survive, they are saying we need this money. And my question, I guess, is what is the sort of financial straits of a number of these clubs, like from the top down? Like, are mm-hmm. they actually in dire straits for this money, or is it? we need this money. Otherwise we're not going to turn a profit over these several difficult years, like on the range of like on the spectrum of, of how badly do they need this money? Where, where, what are we looking at here for these clubs? So, so that's a really like fascinating area. And I think it's one that, that I've tried to explain in my coverage as well, which is, you know, soccer clubs are successful, but their finances are constantly on a knife edge. You know, they drive huge revenues, but their outlays are, you know, by this, standards of any other businesses, any other business, insane, right? (laughs) You know, the salaries have risen exponentially in the past 25 years. The transfer market, as we all know, is a place where you go to set money on fire. You know, you spend $100 million on a player, you might never see a penny of that again. Um, And and that's before you even start paying that guy a salary. Um, So their finances are are just like a, a complete, like, I don't even know what the analogy is because they're churning through so much money without keeping very much of it. And so it puts them in a position where just to compete, you have to often go into massive debt. And we've learned over the past few months that Real Madrid owes at least $400 million. Uh, Barcelona is at least a billion dollars in debt. The situation is less dire for the Premier League clubs because they can count on 150 or $200 million coming in from their TV broadcast deal every year. Um, you know, even if you finish in last place, you're going to take home more money than the champion of France. Um, and so Florentino Perez brought it up in one of his uh, couple of, of frankly unhinged <laughs> radio interviews. Um, but he said, you know, we can't afford to keep losing money like this. Only the English clubs can. And I think that was kind of a shot at who are these cowards who pulled out Um but really, you know, but even the, they so, can't like generate the fortunes right. that they're expecting. But it, it, it seems like it seemed to me fr- from this and from that interview, a couple of things that there was a distinction between the clubs that this loan, at least they experience it as it feels existential to mm-hmm. them yeah. and the clubs where the loan is great. But the stability of the six team of, of the automatic qualification that sort of allows them to try to stabilize their prospective revenues for years and years is more important. Like there's a more of a te- there were there, there were the teams that are in it more for the near term, it seemed like, who are kind yeah. of still in it and the teams that are in it more for the long term. And I think basically that's like a different way of describing the Premier League clubs versus the rest. Um, it's, you know, the Premier League clubs would like that stability, knowing they can project five, 10 years out and have that Champions League money or equivalent uh, year after year coming into the coming out of their books. Um, whereas you've got the Spanish clubs who are not just in a dire financial position, but are in two months time about to make it unimaginably worse in the transfer market. Because the two things like 
being in a bad position is not incompatible for them with going out and spending a fortune on talent. So, you know, the other part of this is, is it is not like these clubs, it is not like the revenue hole that they, that they potentially find themselves in has affected the evaluation of the values of these clubs. I, I'm, I'm sort of curious about that divide where it's not like year over year, what we're seeing is Barcelona as valued by Forbes or whatever is becoming a less valuable entity here or Real Madrid. Are we just, is it, is there just a lag until sort of we, we catch up or is there something structural about like these clubs can be this valuable as sort of club entities, regardless of where they find themselves sort of on a year to year financial basis. So sometimes, and I find this a lot with the valuations of soccer teams and just the potential for their growth, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there. Um, in fact, you're, you're like walking into a hall of mirrors because it's just, you look at one thing and it's like, this team, this, there's like, you know, one or two billion people on earth who know about it. Are those potential customers? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. Um, and so you know, on paper, these are organizations that look great. And that's why I think um, a lot of American investors come in. And, and this was one of the themes of the book too, that like American investors come in and expect like American standards of doing business. And it <laughs> turns out you have in football, what is a, a collection of incredibly popular, often profitable, um, but mostly like incredibly global brands that are run like totally, I mean, it's totally amateur hour in there. And also the football world, as we all know, is populated by like hucksters and charlatans. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a collection of like middlemen everywhere. And that stuns a lot of people who come in and think like, this is not what they taught me at Harvard business school. Um, and so you end up at a, in a situation where you've got that approach that could reach those valuations and, and it, like those valuations exist in a world where like everyone is working to the same standards and every, and like there are not these unexpected costs of like throwing $30 million at Mino Raiola. And perhaps they exist in a world where the Super League just happens because the owners of these clubs decide that it makes sense for it to happen and there's <laughs> that no too. pushback that too wherever where it's like a total it, it, it's the kind of lure of the total free market that they don't know it in the nfl or in major league baseball but that they see in soccer except when you're in that in that total free market it's actually the wild west totally makes sense yeah i i there was a just on the there was a quote from uh Alexander Seferin and the I saw were complaining about how outraged that people were that the that the teams were leaving. They said even mafia organizations have some sort of code, which is <laughs> one of those like moments where you accidentally reveal you know what business you're in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This this is just you know they're all in the uh, waste removal business. Totally <laughs> legitimate. Which like I mean I mean so, literally like Florentino Perez is a is a construction magnet and mm -hmm. the the one of the things you you report is that the the way that the financing came through was through a capital uh, through this key capital yep. organization that then they worked with JP Morgan to get the mm -hmm. loan in and so it all sort of went through these like personal connections a little bit and that's that's the real truth of uh of football and i think it really came out into the open. It's always been known in football circles where it really came out into the open was the 2015 FIFA scandal. When you realize actually this hugely popular enterprise is run in secret by like 12 guys. <laughs> 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 and it's, that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, a lot of uh, smoke filled rooms, a lot of people operating with total impunity because really until 2015 no one had ever been caught doing anything shady um also kind of till 2015 there was nobody to catch them like the organization no. was like operating sort of like above and beyond law enforcement in yeah. a lot of real ways and, and even without doing and i'm not suggesting there's any criminal activity here right. in in the super league but the idea of uh just doing things because you can pick up the phone and call 
the person who owns another like huge organization in your business and and that you don't really have to you there are no like there's no one you have to give an excuse to almost right. you don't have to justify it to anyone um which is, is or no at least they didn't right or they didn't think you have to justify it to anyone and that was one of the real surprises for them um especially and we're seeing it again like from florentino perez and others they were not ready for the backlash especially in england and it was suddenly this wave of of fury from players rival clubs the british press um and boris johnson that they were not ready for they had completely underestimated that yeah one thing and one thing you mentioned um earlier is that like you know perez is whatever else you want to say about him out there understanding himself as a public face of an organization that is trying to sell something. And all of the other owners who were, as, as you're saying, like it's, it's you know, these guys got on the phone with each other and made these deals, but none of them like have any interest in being the public face of anything. And so you ended up with like a, a marketing plan, a, 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 an attempt to sell a global brand that didn't have anyone selling it. Yeah, it's it's really incredible that you know we heard about the we heard from the owners in this bizarre statement where you had Joel Glazer suddenly quoted on the Liverpool website, um, and and I mean that was already a way to get like you know millions of people against you, and then we didn't hear from them again until John Henry's video uh, Wednesday morning where he was just, he was apologizing to the fans and in there, like the only person they trotted out the whole time was Florentino Perez on a pretty, you know, kind of tabloidy, slightly trashy program that started at midnight in Spain on, uh, on Monday night where they played like who wants to be a millionaire music in the background. It was really quite surreal. I mean, I think that <laughs> all of that made opposition to the Super League fairly easy or certainly easier for like the sort of mm-hmm. di- disparate groups that, that oppose it. But I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised at, at sort of the solidarity that all of these different groups managed to hang on to in, in opposing it. You know, because you had really like... Fans are very different from FIFA and UEFA. Players are very different from mm-hmm. coaches and are all then they're all different from these each other. Liverpool and Manchester United are two very different groups of people. And sort of like for the most part, everybody was singing from the same songbook. And did that did it surprise you the degree to which everybody was sort of up to and including Boris Johnson was sort of in lockstep about this? And is there a world maybe where that splinters and the Super League doesn't find the path as hard to walk down? The Super League was prepared to bear a lot of pain. They knew fans were going to be against them. They knew that um, the clubs that weren't invited were going to be against them. And I think they probably even expected some criticism from like players and managers. They were not prepared for government to be against them. And the idea of Boris Johnson going into that Premier League meeting on, uh, was it Monday or Tuesday, Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. and saying he was going to drop a legislative bomb on them. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, Boris Johnson is uh, nothing if, if not an operator. And he saw which way the wind was blowing. And to say that, where who knows, you know, what that legislative bomb would have been, how enforceable it would have been if it would have passed. But the idea that suddenly he raises the possibility of, you know, protecting uh, football clubs as historic or cultural businesses that are separate from regular businesses, um, that is a great way to spook a lot of foreign investors because, you know, they don't send their money abroad to get embroiled in political battles. Uh, They send it abroad to make easy money. And that's what they're all in it for. Yeah, that's that is yeah, that was the thing that jumped out at me too. And, and sort of when I think about the, the causal dominoes, it's like there was massive and unified public outrage. There was opposition from FIFA and UEFA, and so since there was no voice speaking for it, it's like an easy call for an op mm-hmm. for a political operator to to figure out sort of where I'm supposed to come down. And, and that was really stunning, the by other- the way. The, the idea that like you know there were very there was almost no one out there 
uh, from the Super League, like even briefing, they weren't calling journalists. They weren't like trying to find get some people on side. It, yeah. it was really stunning that we also only ever got two press releases, one announcing the Super League and one saying basically waving the white flag. Yeah. One of the things that struck me is like they had so many structural advantages like mm-hmm. that, that they just never used. Like th- they've got under contract, they've got these incredibly popular players and managers. They've got relationships with local media. They've got fans who like, it's not hard to imagine the selling point. I, I, was, I was reading about uh, at Barcelona seems to be doing this. There was a, a quote from uh, a socio saying, we want to play the best. We don't want to play Ibar. Like there is a way for that fan discourse to get started. And mm-hmm. all of the, I, I kind of expected at least some of that. And like, it's really interesting to me that none of it happened. None of it. Um, it. They just didn't figure out how to mobilize it. And I think part of that is how rushed it was at the end, at the very end. You know, they signed up two clubs, Chelsea and Man City, basically on Friday um, before the Sunday announcement. And not much else was in place for all the preparation. And Perez says it was three years. They never figured out how to communicate in a convincing way, because I really think that what it came down to is that they thought the strength of their brands being 12 of the most celebrated football clubs in the world was enough. And that that does not come with the power that they thought that did. So the timing is interesting here and, and sort of the rushed feeling of it all. I, I think the, the general understanding is that they wanted to come out on Sunday before UEFA announced the structural yeah. changes to the Champions League on Monday, which are set to take um, effect in 2024. And which, by the way, are like quite friendly to, to big clubs here. It, it, it insulates a, a couple more clubs to get into the Champions League, even if they don't qualify. It puts more games against big teams in a, in a bigger group stage. You know, all of this stuff. Um is that was that deadline real? Like, it, was there a reason why they could not have taken three more weeks and announced their Super League after the fact, or was it just like none of them wanted to like have to go through the process of sitting there and pretending that they wanted to that they were on board with the Champions League changes and then do an about face? Yeah, uh, which is what happened, by the way. In effect, like you right. know, Allegri, <laughs> Allegri shutting off his phone because he'd said to uh, to Sheffrin, uh, we're ready to go. I'm, you know, we're gonna we're gonna counter this thing. I'd heard of the same rumors, and then ignoring Sheffern and altogether ghosting him at the end. Um, but the the idea, I think, was that the Super League was looking to, uh, you know, attack UEFA's credibility in many ways, and so they knew that the the reforms were being announced on Monday that they were going to go through, so they needed to preempt them somehow. Um, in effect they shot themselves in the foot because the reform is passed almost without any coverage. You know, suddenly we wake up now and look in the cold light of day at, at the football we're left with. And it's, phew, all right, we avoided the Super League. Hang on, we have a 36-team Champions League starting in 2024. 20, and there may be two legacy teams that qualify through a different route. And also there's now 10 group games. What happened? You know, is this not kind of a version of the Super League? Right. Like it, it really, and this is um, something I was interested in as this was going forward. And there was also like a story of um, that, that UEFA was trying to secure its own loan to, to like back up some of those clubs. Do you know, do you know things what's going on with that or. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, that effort is in progress. And because the other part of it is that like, regardless of the super league, UEFA needs money. UEFA is also trying to, improve the payments to clubs um, because the clubs are, are not happy still. And, and as I said before, you know, if the, the Super League failed this time, the conditions are still present. Um, the, the tensions are still present. Um, so UEFA is still in the business of trying to keep its member clubs happy. Uh, and and they, need, they need those finances because they've kind of been kicked in the teeth by the, by the pandemic as well. So I think that this probably brings us to like, what next as, as, as the major question? Um, you know, I, there was talk today of perhaps England uh, trying to make, you know, changes to rules that would make it impossible 
for basically to, to, to join a breakaway group that you would, you know, automatically be, be ejected from the premier league or some such. Um, there have been, there's been talk in England about re re-examining the, the fit and proper clause mm-hmm. for ownership for, for clubs. Does the failed effort here, you know, we're talking about how obviously it's true that like the, the conditions are still in place. All of these owners still feel the same things, but at the same time, my question would be is structurally, does failing here make it harder for them to go and do this again in the future in the same manner to try to break away? Yeah, I think it probably does. I think they've handed a lot of power back to the domestic leagues and to UEFA. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot about the idea that like you had one shot at this and you missed. It's it's tough to regroup and try again because the Premier League clubs, at least, are going to be very shy about it. You know, Agnelli and Perez might say, we're not done here. We're, we're just going to find other clubs. We're going to start our own Super League. We don't need the English. But you kind of did. The whole point of it is because Spain and Italy look at the Premier League and they say, we want that. You know, there is, there is some idea here that, like, what ends up happening now is all of a sudden the Premier League, with the Premier League clubs, see the 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 foundation of a Super League as a competitor to them. And all of a sudden, going forward, what you see is the Premier League lands, you, you know, the Premier League is able to keep its teams on side and then lands on side with FIFA and UEFA as opposed to whatever it is that the bigger continental clubs want to do. Mm-hmm. And then, and maybe partners up, and I'm just speculating here, but partners up with like a club world cup and things like that, which is a long running FIFA project. And, and we know is on the way it's in some version that, you know, if it's a 2014 FIFA club world cup, then you throw in a bunch of premier league clubs and you know, that keeps everyone happy. It gets them more games, gets them more like box office matchups. Um, and that's what they're chasing in the end. Yeah. One thing I've been thinking about with like sort of what comes next is that in the formation of the Premier League, as you said, it was very much about a sort of chain, a conceptual change, which Mm -hmm. happened at a time of massive growth. Like the conceptual change is a big part of what enables this like exponential growth in revenue from television. And that, right. And so you're in this sort of situation of plenty, if you could just kind of like flip a few switches in your brain. It seems to me that we're, we're now in much more of a situation of constraint, that the, uh, the, the TV deals are not going up at the same rate that they used to be, and that part of what's going on here is teams trying to adjust to what might not be a business that just keeps going up and up and up. Do you think that yeah, that's, that's sort a, of... That's a great way to frame it. Um, and what it is, I, I think... You know, they were looking for growth in, in every aspect. And what happened is if they feel that growth isn't coming quickly enough, um, they try to break the system that, that they feel is constraining them. And I think ultimately, if they still feel that we're at a kind of saturation point and, you know, UEFA isn't developing quickly enough to, to deliver, you know, 10 or 20% growth year on year, you know, would in any, in any other business would be considered enormous, but only in football is it not enough. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of owners ask themselves some really tough questions now because one, they'll feel they've hit the ceiling. Two, they're badly chastened right now. Uh, this, was, this was not just a failure. This was a humiliation for a lot of them, a, a personal one. Um, I don't think John Henry wants to do a video of where he has to apologize to his own fans. You know, they, they don't want to have to beg people for forgiveness. These are, these are proud guys who uh, are often quite disconnected from, from the supporters themselves. So I think of the 12 and that there's enough of them, I'd have to imagine some of them are considering their, their futures with the clubs. At which point we really do get into the question of, of the, the valuation. Right. Are those valuations the between- real? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I do also wonder here, right? Like, failing at this now, at the end, at sort of the end, tail end of a, of a, of a plant pandemic, which is like torpedoed 
a lot of finances. You know, I, I wonder if part of the impetus here is, is some of these owners are looking around and saying, okay, I've got this valuation on paper and I've got this, this, this hole in, in, in the functional finances of it. But I don't see an avenue to sell. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. I see a world in which there isn't this capital floating around that I can just move totally. this club on to the next one. If I don't increase my growth in this dramatic way, like I may be stuck here with an asset that is not sort of going to the moon anymore without an exit strategy and a money sinkhole. Mm-hmm. What is a club? What does a top club cost now? Probably between two and five billion dollars. Um, you know, the C- city football group is valid is valued at five FSG is valued at seven something. Um, who's got that kind of money, right? It's either, you know, huge consortia or countries and Qatar already has a club. Abu Dhabi already has a club. Now, this is, this is the problem with the New York Knicks, generally speaking, is that, you know, everybody wants Jim Dolan to sell and you can't, you know, the Knicks are so valuable. You can't put together a group like, you know, one of one of the stories about it is that, you know, when you have famous investors who want to be a part of a group to buy the Knicks, it's like, well, great, you can give us 15 million, but that's such a small percentage of what it takes. You don't even get like to get treated as super special as part yeah, of this consortium maybe get to do it. tickets. Right. It's <laughs> a really expensive season. <laughs> and a tickets. sandwich. And a sandwich. <laughs> so what you're proposing um, is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia please. should buy the Knicks. This is this is the this is the the idea being put forward here. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a country that already owns NYCFC. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, right, you see Saudi Arabia is sort of interested in, in a club, but it's like there's kind of like limited returns to, again, this, this avenue as well for investment. And so you just sort of have a lot of owners with very valuable assets that are maybe not without an exit strategy. Yeah, and, and also thinking if, if they are going to sell now, what is what are the prospects that they're selling? You know, right. you're selling mostly uh, access to the Premier League. You're selling a stadium, um, likely year on year Champions League qualification money. But what what where it breaks down for me with the idea of the Super League is if by signing on to the Super League they were going to tank the value of everything else. You know, if, if the if suddenly you're in the Super League and you're playing your B team in the Premier League because that's your only focus, um, did they think the Premier League rights were going to stay the same? Serie A rights were going to go in the toilet. La Liga rights were going to do the same. Um, and certainly, like, UEFA was going to end up with much less money because they were going to have a tournament, a Champions League, that still exists without 12 of the best clubs. The whole soccer ecosystem was going to just... The, the value of the soccer ecosystem was going to tank. Yeah, because that, that when the Premier League founded, what they did was they secured their rights to the vast majority of a new pot of money. Exactly. Rather than sort of remove it, rather than taking it away from somebody else. Right. They weren't cannibalizing money. They were finding access to money that had never been spent on football before. And to the extent they were cannibalizing money, it was from the teams that were not getting a share of the TV money in England, right? So, like, to, to the extent that, the, that there was a shift, it was the top tier of England, you know, keeping more money to itself as it grew from, from the bottom teams, which, like, you know, the championship in a world of televised TV was never going to exist alongside the Premier League anyway. So it, it is a difference in distribution, but it is not a difference in in sort of the the top level of the game, I suppose. Whereas now, right, like Premier League and Champions League can exist side by side. And mm-hmm. to a certain extent, Serie A and Bundesliga can as well. Um, yeah, I guess my next question is like, what about the teams that didn't jump on, right? So you had PSG, you had Bayern. I know there was like, there was a feeling Sunday night that that there wasn't, the, that shortly the next domino might fall. That you would wake up Monday and... Bayern and RB Leipzig mm-hmm. and PSG would be the next three teams and you have 15 and away we go. And then it didn't happen. So, so me, go ahead. No, so I was just, I, I'm sort of interested in, in, in the fault lines that already existed that the Super League was not able to overcome at launch mm-hmm. and maybe how close they were or weren't to ever getting there. Germany, the German ones are interesting because at least as far as Dortmund is concerned, it really feels like they saw the whole project as distasteful. 
um, which is really interesting to me. PSG is, is even more fascinating because the situation we have there is PSG is obviously backed by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar. Um, but also the chairman of PSG, a guy named Nasser Al-Khalafi, also happens to be the chairman of BN Sports, the broadcast network, uh, which is a major buyer of UEFA rights. So why would he sign on to a thing that was going to tank the value of his own personal investment? Um, PSG was never going to join this thing if it meant uh, if it if it meant cost them money in a very direct way. Um, and somehow in all of this, Nasser wound up as head of the ECA, a job that was vacated by Agnelli because he's turned his back on the whole setup. Um, and now Qatar are the good guys. How did we get there? Qatar I mean, like more or less is... run European football right now. <laughs> I suppose that is the point of Qatar owning PSG, right? It's to eventually turn Qatar into the good guys. Well, the they've substantially increased their influence right now. And it's it's actually been a pretty good week for uh, for Qatar and soccer. Um, you know, they they stood up for the kind of establishment and they did, they've been very clever over the past 15 years in football. They always worked within the establishment and, and grew their influence to the point where they now have uh, the leadership of the European Clubs Association. They have a team that has been to a Champions League final and could win it this year, and they have a World Cup next year. That's not bad. It's been an interesting, it's, it is an interesting dichotomy between them and, and UAE and Abu Dhabi, where much more so Qatar has been, been willing to work within the confines of the existing structures, whereas, whereas Abu Dhabi came in and bought City and they've bought a number of other clubs and created much more aggressively an ownership network for themselves, but also have been much more willing to try to sort of run roughshod over the, yeah. the existing structures. Now... Well, what I will they were, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what I, what I think you were about to say the same thing uh, is that uh, Man City entered the Super League or signed on to the Super League pretty reluctantly. Um, and what I was told by people uh, close to the club is that the, the choice was kind of presented to them on Friday. And they looked at how the sides were breaking down. And on one side, you had the other 11 clubs, including five Premier League clubs. And on the other, you had Qatar uh, uh, with with PSG. You also had Bayern and Dortmund. And those clubs, the phrasing that was used to me was, they're not our friends. And so if they had to... Oh my God. And if they had to pick one or the other, they were going to join the group that was not the group with PSG. So they did that. But ultimately, once things turned, and, and this is a really important point about Man City and Chelsea in particular, is those owners are in it above all for reputational reasons. That's why they're in football. They're not in there to you know, grow businesses and, and deliver value for shareholders. Um, they're there to improve their image and win trophies. And the two are related. Um, so if, the, if suddenly the Super League is the single biggest thing that's hurting your image, what are you doing there? So I think that's why we saw Chelsea and, and Man City quit first and i was told also that in chelsea's case it really undermined all the other things they're trying to do um whether it's you know their campaign against anti-semitism and and any other projects that they do in the community and that's that's how they framed it internally that makes a lot of sense i think that one thing that's really helpful here is is you're saying like you know we have this new that they, they passed these reforms of the champions league quietly and with, uh, you know, everyone kind of weirdly in favor of them because it's not the Super League. And if you look at the the, the ground here for, okay, what's going to come next going forward, it seems to me the crucial thing is uh, that we, we see is that the, the winners are the big clubs that didn't do this. The winners are the are, are PSG, mm-hmm. Bayern, Dortmund. I, I think Rummenigge also got, got, a, got a major position within UEFA. And so it seems to me one of the questions going forward is what do they want with the influence that they have so suddenly gained? Um, I, I think ultimately it's to continue pushing the UA for reforms in the direction they're already going. But again, it's about operating within the system. I think they feel that they have more legitimacy if they do that. 
um, than if they go and create a rebel uh, breakaway. To that, ultimately, we know now in the football environment is just too costly to get anything else done. It does seem like Bayern, in particular, have talked about prioritizing instead of revenue growth, cost controls in 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 some form mm-hmm. or another when it comes to player salaries or transfers or you know what have you. Just like you know that this was a part of the Super League, right? Like one of the firm details we have in a world without firm details was the, the, their their goal was to keep, you know, salaries to 55% of revenue. Um, and it seems to me that that part of the project is something that is very much supported by Bayern, by UEFA, by a lot of these big clubs. And it's just how they go about trying to implement that is going to be within the structure of whatever exists now. Absolutely. And it's, you know, uh, again, as we were saying, it's just a a case of deciding, you know, how you're going to operate and how you're going to try to affect change in your favor. Because if it's a matter of installing cost controls for everybody, they feel that that helps because that money just means they can then go and spend it in the transfer market if they're not spending it on salaries. One of the big frustrations in football um, is that, even when clubs get extra revenue, the first people it goes to is straight to the players. And it's one of the, the kind of vagaries of football accounting. <laughs> but no one's been able to break that cycle yet. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh. This has been great. And I hope it was super informative. Kelly, you have anything else before we, we get out of here? Yeah, no, thanks so much. I just wanted to know if there's anything else that um, on this topic you wish we would have asked you or any, any other things you'd Anything like to we didn't hit, yeah. Boy, I mean, I, it's tough to answer that question now on the Thursday after the Sunday, but I feel like we're going to be talking about this for a long time. <laughs> All right. Once again, the book is called The Club. It is incredibly relevant to everything that has happened now. Uh, you should all read it. Um, find out about Arsenal's bathrooms. It's perhaps my favorite <laughs> anecdote from the book. Thanks so much, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, y'all. Thank you so much. That was that was great. Really Thanks fun so much, and Josh. Informative. And that, Thanks that, so much. That, I had that, a great time. I hope I didn't ramble too much. No, it's, it's, that, that's what the podcast were, is. <laughs> yeah, you were in the right place for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, no, that 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 city anecdote that is just like it's crazy, isn't that's it? That's yeah, that is a great. It's, anecdote. it's the kind of thing. I'm glad I'm getting it out somewhere because I couldn't print it. <laughs> we are happy. We are happy to be a forum for that for sure. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> they, they are not our friends. Come on, guys. That's a, that is really amazing. Um, thanks a lot, guys. That was a that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I, hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Um, Absolutely. Anytime. All right. See, see you guys. Take care, guys. <laughs>